Hey guys, this is officially part two of my Q&A. If you missed part one, you can find it in the description below. Out of all the things that I really enjoy in ministry, this is one of them, just interacting with you guys on some level uh, because I'm uh, pretty bad about answering my emails. So, so this way you are able to get your questions answered on some level. Uh, hopefully this will help other people as well, because uh, I promise you other people have the same questions as you do. So I wanna keep doing these. Maybe once a month I will put a post out where you guys can write in your questions and my wonderful assistant Ashley will compile them, send them to me and I will make a video of it. I also kind of have a fun announcement, something that I'm really excited about and something that I've been trying to do for the last few years is I'm finally going to graduate in the spring with my bachelor's degree in uh, religious studies. I'm really proud of myself for doing that because that was really tough to, to get done. That, that was a long degree to get. Thanks, COVID. I do think I might, I plan on going for my master's, uh, but I may not. I could probably just edit this part out but uh, now that I said it, I'm going to put it in a video and now I have to do it. So <laughs> I really wanted to be done with that before I actually started doing more Q and A's. And I gotta say, I really enjoy these. So I hope that you guys enjoy this too. Next round of Q and A's will be out next month. I will post on my social medias uh, when I am going to be taking more questions. So keep a lookout for that. But for now, let's go ahead and get into it. Let's get into part two. All right, this is question number six from Christina. How do you talk to someone who is deconstructing their faith? Or how do you explain to them why deconstruction is wrong or flawed? Okay, I'm not exactly sure of the details of the situation, but I can only assume that they're not reforming their faith, but they're deconstructing it. But if this were me, this is how I would handle this. First, I would listen. I think we panic when someone around us is losing faith or deconstructing. I personally would want to know why and how. Like, is this an intellectual pursuit or is this an emotional detachment from God? So, because many times it's intellectual and they're wanting answers that nobody could provide and I can really relate to this. <laughs> that was actually a huge catalyst for me going into the new age. So are they wanting an excuse to leave their faith or are they open to seeking out real answers? Number two, I don't give up on them. Um, what I mean by this is I don't have a conditional love on them where they can no longer be a part of my life or my clan, right? If they end up believing differently than me. I do think that there would be some caveats to that, of course, depending on it stumbling your faith. Uh, but other than that, I wouldn't find that there would be a need to just oust them completely. I would keep a connection with them because sometimes just making yourself available is a great outlet for them to maybe possibly get some answers. What happened with me is that it's almost like people were afraid to consider my questions. They liked their bubble and they liked their echo chamber and people tend to avoid things that might give them pause about their beliefs because it can challenge their worldview and it can disrupt their comfort. So what ends up happening is they go to people that are more like them and seem to have answers, but really they give them exits. They give them a reason to leave. 
All right, and third, I'm still learning a lot about deconstruction and what that means, but I can say that it's not always 100% wrong, but I do think that this is under the category of reforming your faith instead of just defaulting uh, to like a religious pluralism or relativism. Sometimes people are just re-examining their faith, right? And they come back stronger than ever. And other times people don't want answers. They want their exits and they basically want a reason to not believe. And that distinction is very important, but most of the time it's the latter. Now, I know that you've probably already heard of the wonderful, amazing Elisa Childers, but if not, she's written an entire book about her journey through navigating through progressive Christianity. She has a YouTube channel as well and a podcast. She went through a type of deconstruction as well, um, though I think she would have a different word for it, uh, but she did write a book about it. It's called Another Gospel, and I can't recommend it enough when it comes to understanding progressive Christianity and this topic. Question number seven is from Marty. Several scholars say Mark 16 verses nine through 20 was added later, possibly by an overzealous scribe because it doesn't appear in some earlier manuscripts. Do you hold that opinion? And if not, what would your explanation of Mark 16, 18 be? I've heard people say he was addressing or referring to the apostles, which would make them apostolic gifts, which I would totally understand and agree with. But if he is not referring to the apostles, then how is this explained? Okay, so this alone could be its own video, the ending of Mark. <laughs> okay, I'm in no way, shape or form going to say that I have all of this figured out, but I do want to start by saying that I do not have a, what I call a house of cards theology on the ending of Mark. What I mean by that is my faith is not so fragile that it rises or falls on something like this. Uh, I do, however, have a current position on this and I'm up for changing my mind and learning more and more. Um, but as of now, no, my answer is no. I do not think that Mark wrote verses nine through 20, nor do most scholars. So for me, the external and internal evidence just seem very convincing to me that this is not Mark who wrote it, particularly the internal evidence. I don't think it was missing or hidden or lost. I think it was added. Now, who put it there? I'm not sure, uh, but it was written early and it was embraced by many. And I actually don't see an issue with it being in our Bibles at all and find it a really interesting study. The thing is, is just because he didn't write it doesn't mean it's not true. So before I get to the core of your question, I just wanna add uh, that it's interesting considering how manuscript and canonization happened. Like people are over here making a fuss about what if this was added or this was taken away and the Bible was pieced together. And then here we have this ending of Mark that I think is a really good example of textual criticism. Like it's added, but with a caveat. And the reason that there's a caveat is because of the consistency and reliability of the rest of the manuscripts, right? But okay, to, to your question, um, if this is the case and we shouldn't have a problem with this in our Bibles, then what do these scriptures mean? Particularly verse 18 right? So you only asked about verse 18. So I'm going to only focus on that. So thanks for that. And what's the application to verse 18? Is it to the apostles? Is it to us or what? Right? Uh, so first let's, let's read this. Let's read verses 17 through 18. It says, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name, they will cast out demons and they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick 
and they will recover. I'm still sorting this out, okay? But this is what I believe about these verses at the moment, okay? So first, I can hear my seminary professor living rent-free in my head, and, and what he's saying is that there are no imperatives here. Now, what that means is that there are no implicit commands to go do these things, right? In other words, there's not a command to go out and handle snakes and drink poison. <laughs> this is really important because this is simply an observation that this has happened, not a command to make it happen. Now, second, something I've always found really interesting about these verses is how oddly misplaced they are. I mean, I mentioned this before about the internal evidence, but this is one reason why I don't think Mark wrote this. I mean, speaking in tongues alone should give this away in my opinion. Nowhere in any of the gospels is this a thing, all right? This looks like something that belongs in the book of Acts, not the gospels. Now, speaking of Acts, just to build on this second point, it's almost as if the writer of the longer ending was familiar with Pentecost and the events in Acts, particularly like Paul being bitten by a snake and not dying. The thing is, is that Paul got bitten by accident. It was not because he was trying to prove that he was a believer by handling snakes. God preserved him and this was a sign of God, right? This sign allowed Paul to preach the gospel. See the difference? Like it's just odd and stupid to just put yourself in danger on purpose, right? This was a sign, a miracle done from God to further the reach of the gospel. And this brings me to my third point. Your question was about who was this for? Like who was Jesus referring to? Now, if I were just to go back and read verse 17, it's obvious that he's talking about these signs accompanying those who believe. So it doesn't seem to be limited to the apostles because believers in general have done these things. Like, uh, for example, speaking in tongues, healing the sick and things like that. But I think uh, the key is in verse 17, uh, saying that these signs will follow those who believe. This is where I want to talk about signs and what they are. Because the purpose of the sign gifts was to authenticate and spread the gospel. I think the situation with Paul is a perfect example. He wasn't being all extra, showing off, drinking poison, or throat punching some cobras. He was supernaturally protected. And from that protection, he was able to share about Jesus because of that protection. There's not an exact reference for the poison, but I submit that the same logic applies. You don't drink poison like a prideful psycho trying to prove you're super spiritual or something. I think it would possibly be a situation where the enemies of the believers might try to poison them or something, right? And God would supernaturally protect them. And that protection would get people's attention to listen to the gospel. This isn't permission to be totally careless. This is saying that the signs are consistent with spreading the gospel, like how the early church did. The signs were not about us. They were not about showing we were true believers. This is a very eisegetical view of this, in my opinion, a trap that many Christians fall into. This is about authenticating the gospel. So in this perspective, in my opinion, these verses are not that weird. It's possible that this might be metaphorical, I guess, but I don't think or believe that really. Um, and either way, this should not be taken literally like how some people have done. I think the key is to look at how sign gifts were applied 
and used. Now, I hope that that helps maybe, um, gives you something to think about, maybe uh, helps answer your question a little bit. I know that there's a lot more to know about this, uh, but this is just my take on it. I know that Mike Winger spent like two years going through the Gospel of Mark or something like that and spent hundreds of hours researching this very topic. I'm still trying to figure out if he's human or not. All right, question eight is from someone who wants to remain anonymous. I have so many friends that quote Richard Rohr, read and believe the four agreements, have had reincarnation experiences, etc. How do you tell someone their experiences aren't real? What does it look like to lovingly say that statement or author or experience is wrong? Again, this would be with like a friend having a glass of wine, coffee, din at dinner, not a debate with a well-equipped atheist or a theologian. I'm glad that you mentioned that this was a friend because uh, that can really help the dynamics. Okay, first I gave similar advice before, uh, but if it's me, again, I listen a lot first. My natural rule is to seek to understand, then be understood. If you listen to really understand, I can say that the odds that they'll feel respected enough to hear your thoughts are dramatically heightened. This isn't just like a tactic, right? This is simply being polite and smart, in my opinion. This is just being a person. And as an ex-New Ager, I would also say that their experiences are probably very real, but that doesn't mean they're true. In other words, sometimes it's like a pseudo experience where it's more something they're subjectively reading into and other times they've opened up some spiritual doors uh, that seem to be giving information or experiences that seem to make Christianity and the Bible look shabby and outdated. In my experience, actually being in the new age and hearing perspectives of people, this is actually one thing that did drive them into the new age is that there was no frame of reference in the Christian worldview for their supernatural experiences. So my point is, is that number one, sometimes they can look more into it than is necessary. But number two, sometimes it's an authentic experience, but it doesn't mean the source of it is a good one. <laughs> Another thing is the implication is that if you don't come to the same theological conclusions they do, then you're not as spiritually mature as they are. And I mentioned people being attracted to the new age, but I say this is usually why people are attracted to progressives as well, like Richard Rohr. That being said, never underestimate the power of putting a stone in someone's shoe. I find that in my experience, progressives and new agers tend to dismiss a lot of uh, uh, frontal arguments about scripture. So the advice I'm going to give is from personal experience and also from learning uh, from people much smarter than me about this topic. Now, there's this wonderful thing that I wish more Christians knew about called prolegomena. I'm gonna spell it down here, prolegomena. It's a big word, don't let it scare you. Now, some of you know exactly what that means and what I'm getting at, but I'm assuming most don't know what this is. All prolegomena is in this context is basically what you would discuss first before even getting into the Bible. Things like metaphysics, which I do not mean in a new age sense, but in a, in like theologically, this is the study of God. Does God exist? What is reality? Are miracles real, right? If they believe in God, which most likely they do, then what do they mean by God, right? And there's only six real answers anyone can give that will fall into one of these categories. First is theism, right? Which is that God is infinite. This is where Judaism and Christianity would be. Second is deism, 
which is that God is beyond the universe, but he's not active. Then there's pantheism, which is God is everything, which is what a lot of New Agers believe. Atheism, which is no God, we're familiar with that. Then there's what's called finite godism, which is that there are many finite gods, kind of like uh, ancient Greece or even Mormonism would find themselves somewhere in that. And finally, there's something called panentheism, which sounds like pantheism, but it is not, it is different. Uh, this belief is basically like God is the universe as a soul is in the body. And this is what someone like Richard Rohr would believe. Um, and also guys, I have to apologize. I have a tin roof um, and it's sprinkling, just barely sprinkling, but you can hear it on the tin. So I apologize if that is disrupting. So like I said, that is something that Richard Rohr would believe. Okay, so for example, to Rohr, uh, Jesus and Christ are separate. Jesus obtained the universal Christ, right? That's the name of his book. And supposedly we can too. Without the Christ, he was just a man, right? This is where I would maybe ask some questions about where Rohr got this information from about Jesus. All right, because this is not from the Bible alone. So what is he mixing with it to get that conclusion? I would ask something like, okay, I see that this is what you believe and this is what Rohr teaches, right? I read the Bible pretty regularly and see these same words used, but taking the Bible alone, I wouldn't come to Rohr's conclusions. I know the Bible talks about and warns about Gnostic beliefs and I know that New Age is as old as the garden, right? So help me see your perspective. Are there other resources he's using to come to this conclusion? This might be a good way to discover that Rohr is not as biblical as some people think. And also, some people don't realize that there are warnings from the Bible about different Jesuses and different Gospels, or that the serpent's lie, uh, which is elevating man to godhood, is a thing. But next, I would cover what's called epistemology, which is the study of truth. This is one of my favorite conversations to have with a progressive or a new ager. What is truth? Is there an objective truth? If you can verify with them that truth is objective, then that means there must be a true belief about God. You both cannot be right. Is, is theism true or is panentheism true? Is the God of the Bible real? Did the resurrection really happen? These are questions I would look into together with this friend. I would also say never underestimate prayer, the spirit working, and what he can do with a stone in a shoe. <laughs> now, a book that I would recommend uh, if they would be willing to read it is by Greg Kokel. It's out of print, unfortunately, uh, but I do think it's available in some places. It's called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. People are attracted to progressive beliefs, in my opinion, because they seem to have an intellectual focus. When other ideas are presented from a biblical Christian perspective that meet that intellectual need, they tend to be more open to listening. So to lovingly say to somebody like, hey, this is wrong or this is right or whatever it is, sometimes they have to come to that conclusion on their own for it to really land well. And that involves being uh, in their circle, you know, breaking that echo chamber, so to speak, to plant those seeds, put that stone in that shoe. And sometimes you gotta say it directly. I would say that there's a balance of those both. Hopefully this helped. Hopefully that gives you something to think about, something to work with. Let me know. Oh, glory to God, the rain let up for a little bit. I'm hoping that I can finish this video before it starts again. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you guys, tin roofs, they're just dramatic. 
I, I gotta cover this somehow. Okay, question number nine is from Patty. Who are your top five pastors, preachers, and teachers? Only five? <laughs> I'm gonna share the teachers and pastors uh, and people that I read and listen to often, but uh, I'm gonna be a cheater bedeater and name more than five. Okay, first, my own pastor. I attend a Calvary church out here and have always appreciated uh, the theological, uh, exegetical approach that they have to scripture. Uh, second, probably my favorite to listen to lately uh, and have had the most aha moments from are from Greg Kokel with Stand to Reason, hands down. He's brilliant. He has a way of putting things that we can easily understand and I appreciate that. And on that note, the whole gang at Stand to Reason is worth mentioning Amy Hall, John Noyes, who I just interviewed, uh, Tim Barnett, who you guys know as Red Pen Logic with Mr. B, Alan Schleeman, and more. They have all played a part in my spiritual life. Also in this category, I wanna give a shout out to Frank Turk with Cross-Examined. I'm on the uh, Cross-Examined apologetics team at Cross-Examines. I do videos on their channel. And Frank's books in particular, I've had just the biggest paradigm shifts in understanding certain things about theology, about how God works, about the tough questions in life, uh, and really helping me understand and grapple with some, some tough things. So uh, I really enjoyed his books, particularly Stealing from God. All right, third, my professors at SES, which is Southern Evangelical Seminary. Even outside of school, I watch their channels and read their books which will be in the description if you'd like to check them out. They are incredibly erudite. So some of what I hear goes over my head, uh, but some of it doesn't. And I love how it really challenges me and hurts my brain. So there's that. Uh, number four, I'm gonna shove three into this one because I can, and I want to name some women who have really helped me. I listen to their podcasts and read their books. Uh, first is Natasha Crane, whose book Faithfully Different was very eye-opening for me. I needed to read that book. Elisa Childers, who is well-spoken, articulate, and has a way of uh, making difficult topics relatable. And last, a center for biblical unity with uh, Monique Dusan and Krista Bontrager. So I guess that's four, not three. <laughs> Their focus is on cultural matters uh, in a biblical perspective, especially addressing critical race theory. I've interviewed all of them, so I will leave in the description of this video those interviews if you wanna check them out. All right, and fifth, I wanna name a few theologians and apologists that are much smarter than me and I look up to that you may not have heard of. Uh, they are Dr. Mikel Del Rosario, Neil Shenvey, and Wesley Huff. You would do yourself a favor to check them out. I think that they're brilliant, you know, and then some commentaries that are worth mentioning uh, that I've really learned a lot from and have gotten a lot from. Uh, David Guzik with Blue Letter Bible. You have J. Vernon McGee, Warren Wearsby, and those are just commentaries. So I think that David Guzik actually does have a YouTube channel as well, if you wanna check that out. All of these will be in the description of this video. So you asked for five and got like 15. That was a hard question. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm gonna do my best and answer this last question before this rain gets to drama. All right, question number 10 is from Hannah. My question is whether or not you think it's wise to invite Mormon missionaries to my house with the goal of sharing the truth with them. I have a zeal for Mormons and did a lot of research into their beliefs recently. I don't know if it should go out of my way to invite them or wait for the opportunity to arise naturally, especially since it'd be two against one and it may seem weird that I'm the one who asked them to come only to contend with them. Oh no, absolutely a million times yes. I think that you should. 
Yes, please do this. Whether it's waiting for them to come to, to your home or if you see them out, I was the Christian that would actually go to the ward or go to the kingdom hall to talk to them. Now, I've mentioned this before, but over 10 years ago, this was my first love in ministry. It was witnessing to and reaching the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I love them. There are many ministries out there that are devoted specifically to just this, reaching them and also equipping Christians with effective means to reach Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I think many Christians don't know what LDS and J-dubs believe enough to effectively witness to them, but it makes such a difference if you know what they believe uh, so you can like speak their language, so to speak. Now, it reminds me of researching a different culture or country before you go to visit. Like, what are their norms? What, what's considered offensive? What are some major differences between how we do things and how, how should I adjust accordingly to be a good visitor, right? So I see the same thing with people of other religions. Honestly, I commend you for this. Uh, talking with many former LDS and Jehovah's Witnesses that are now Christians, they have many reasons why this is effective and biblical to do so. They would always say repeatedly how Christians just never shared the gospel with them, that, that they were in need of hearing the gospel. And there was almost like this forgiveness on their part that they had to extend to Christians because they, they wouldn't invite them in and share the truth with them. They just pushed them away. And in hindsight, that is something they could never do to another Jehovah's Witness or Mormon because they've been there and they understand what it's like to be lost. I remember even doing classes with Christians all those years ago, teaching them to, to reach out to particularly Jehovah's Witnesses, um, that there's an effective way to do this and that we should be doing this. And I have a whole series on uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, their beliefs, uh, how to reach them. I will, again, leave that in the description if you wanna check it out, but there are effective ways that we can reach them Yes, I do think that you should do this. I will leave uh, many other resources about this topic in the description uh, for those who are interested to know more. I just interviewed Eric Johnson, who has a ministry that reaches out to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses about this very thing. And I also interviewed Micah Wilder a while ago, who I had the honor of endorsing his book as well. He is a former Mormon. I will leave both of these in the description to check out. Uh, but yeah, I don't see why inviting someone to hear the gospel is wrong. They need the gospel too. And I think you need to know enough about scripture to know why we have a vast difference of beliefs and use that to sharpen your apologetics. But as you said, this is something that you've been researching. You know a lot about their beliefs. Um, and I'm pretty sure you probably already might be familiar with these ministries that I'm mentioning. I think that if you're well-equipped, absolutely. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Another really cool thing that happens when we interact with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses is that we are forced in a good way to really get in the Bible, to know why what they believe is unbiblical. Those were great years. I'm telling you, those were some of the best years in my Christian walk, witnessing to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, because I really got my head in the Bible and, and read it and understood, wow, they are lost and they need Jesus. But it was the Bible that illuminated that. So it was like that synergy of their beliefs versus the Bible. And I had to kind of know that. And it was, it was great. It was really cool. So yeah, I hope that this helped. Uh, I hope this helped answer your question. And yeah, I hope that all of these answers were sufficient enough, uh, helpful. 
Uh, I really enjoy doing these Q&As, so keep a lookout for the next one. Let me know your thoughts. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think I missed something? Let me know in the comments below.